But it, it really, it ties in, at least the first part ties in with the very end of chapter 7, and where it says in verse 53, and everyone went to his home. And it says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, verse 1 of chapter 8. And early in the morning he came again into the temple area, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and he began teaching them. Now the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery, and after placing her in the center of the courtyard, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this man has been caught, excuse me, teacher, this woman. There's a slip there, huh? I'll get into that in a minute. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? Now they were saying this to test him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground and when they had persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said and said uh, to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw the first stone. And again, he stooped down, and he wrote on the ground. Now, when they had heard this, they began leaving one by one, because with the older, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. And the wom woman, where she was, in the center of the courtyard, and straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Do no one, did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, and from now on, do not sin any longer. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. We ask, Lord, that you would minister to us in this passage. Lord, help us to, to see your heart here, your heart of compassion. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. And Lord, you demonstrated that oh so well here in this passage. And so Lord, help us to embrace that this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Interesting, as I, we were singing that first song, I'm thinking, this fits right into the tech. I didn't even, didn't even think about it. I didn't plan it, all right? Uh, God planned it, apparently. Um, this is an interesting passage. There's a lot of theories about this passage. One, as some of you might know, it's not found in the earliest manuscripts. It's not there. There's a lot of theories about what's going on with this particular passage. And it gives rise to what is called textual criticism. Now, textual criticism can sound like it means, or mean like it sounds, right? But textual criticism, and there are different theologians who do it, some of them who are conservative, some of them who are liberal. Some of them that I've read, 
I think they need to get saved. But anyway. But there's a lot of debate about what's going on and what textual criticism is. And in, in, in short, I'll read you a definition that a conservative biblical scholar wrote um, about textual criticism. He defined it this way. He said, it is the study of the copies of a written document whose original, that is the autograph, is unknown or non-existent for the primary purpose of determining the exact wording of the original. Now, good luck with that, right? It's very difficult. It's a, it, but, but there are, you have to trace through other documents. This was not in the early manuscripts. Um, so then that adds the question, is it canonical? What do I mean by canonical? A part of the canon. That is, a part of the inspired word of God. Because if it's not in the early manuscripts, why is it not in the early manuscripts? Does it challenge the rest of the book? Um, there are two different views on this. It either was a later addition. If that's the case, then it's probably not canonical. Incidentally, in some of the manuscripts of Luke, this story is in, in, this, uh, uh, in the Gospel of Luke as well. It was either added or what a lot of textual critics do not consider, it was omitted. It was a part of the original writings of John, and it was omitted. Why would someone do that? You have to remember, too, that these documents were all handwritten. They didn't have a printing press in the first century. We know that, right? They were handwritten. They were very laborious to copy and to write out. There were errors that were made in the writing of some of these uh, copies. And of course, even in the compilation of the copies, we don't have the full text of all the copies. Not every copy is a full text. Sometimes they're called fragments, just a short little piece of part of a gospel or part of a letter. Now, I will say, going into this, I think that God was faithful to preserve his word for us. And I'm confident in that. If I wasn't confident in that, I would be doing something else. But, was this a later addition or an early omission? The early omission idea makes a lot of sense to me. Why? Because Jesus gave this woman very easy forgiveness. Did he not? I mean, the text says what it says. He didn't make her do a bunch of stuff to earn his forgiveness. He didn't throw down, she's probably, I can imagine her kneeling down in front of everybody. He didn't throw down a four spiritual laws track and tell her to read it, read the prayer at the end, recite the prayer at the end. 
There's only one word really, in, and I'll get to that in a minute. There's really, to me, only really one word in this whole uh, conversation that gives me the indication that this woman repented. I think she did. But it could have been omitted because of the ease of, by which Jesus forgave her. Now, if you've read much early, early church writings, it was hard to be a Christian. If, if, if these guys were your pastors, they, it, it was very, very tough. If, if you've read Ignatius of Antioch, late, late first century or very early second, I think it's late first, he writes seven letters to seven churches. He has been captured in Smyrna. He's been taken to Rome to be executed. And in re I've read the whole, all, all the letters, and he, you know, he, he makes statements like, I'm just now becoming a Christian, and telling the church not to rescue him. He wants to be a martyr. Um, and it's, it's, you know, and, and saying that this is the real true uh, proof of your faithfulness to Christ, essentially. I'm now I'm really paraphrasing in this. But it was very stern during the time of the Roman persecution, which, by the way, was localized. It was not widespread throughout the entire empire. It was mainly localized in different hot spots all throughout uh, the first three centuries. There were those who were known as the lapsed, L-A-S-P-E-D, the lapsed, those who under pressure denied Christ, saved their lives. And after the persecution, and amen, remember it came in waves. It wasn't a solid 300 plus years of total persecution. After the persecution in that area ended, a lot of these people who had denied Christ wanted back in the church. And in many cases, the church would not let them back. They had denied Christ. They had lost the faith. They had lost their salvation in, in some views. I've read some of the writings on that. It was very harsh. Early church was very harsh, very, very strict, very stern. And it could have been that this passage was just too easy forgiveness to be true, and so they took it out. It's possible. However, it shows up in 5th century documents. Augustine, 5th century, and called it legitimate. So did Ambrose, 5th century. He referred to it as legitimate. Jerome considered it legitimate when he translated the Greek New Testament into Latin. And Jerome was 4th century. He was the one who baptized Constantine. He considered it authentic, and he included it in what's called the Latin Vulgate, Latin version of the New Testament. It ended up in what is called the Texas Receptus. Hopefully this isn't too heavy for you. I'm really scaling this down, all right? It ended up in the Texas Receptus. 
if you don't know this, the Textus Receptus was the compilation of different Greek manuscripts that was, became one translation that eventually became the foundation or the basis for the King James Version, 1611. So it was accepted by the church. It was always been accepted by the Western church. The Eastern church had problems with it. None of the early fathers made, really uh, made no comments about the passage until about the 7th to 9th century. And yet it appeared first in some of these obscure Eastern texts. So I really could, have, I could probably go for a couple weeks on this. Needless to say, I'm comfortable with this being a part of God's inspired work. Your knowledge may vary. Um, and so with that, let's look at the text. How's that? Since so Jesus goes up to the Mount of Olives, right? He comes down the next morning and he begins teaching in the temple area and all the people are coming to him. He's really drawing a crowd. And he sits down and he begins teaching them. The, the typical posture of a rabbi of that time was the teacher sat and everybody else stood. So um, I'm going to go ahead and get a stool and we're going to, if you mind, stay, I'm kidding. Uh, and so that's, that was the typical posture of teaching widespread uh, in Israel at that time. And it says that the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman in the, uh, who was caught in the act of adultery, which means she was a married woman. She's been painted as a prostitute. Probably wasn't. Adultery means you cheat on your spouse. That's what adultery means. The other, uh, a single person who has sex outside of marriage, that's called fornication. All right. So she was probably a married woman. At least I'm fairly convinced that's the case. And they bring her to Jesus because she was caught in the act of adultery, so they say. And they said to Jesus, Rabbi, this woman has been caught in the very act of committing adultery. Caught in the very act of committing adultery. Okay, problem number one. Where's the man? That's one problem. Now, this is taken even from, an, there's some other writings about either a similar event or this event that the man overpowered them and ran away. Which might not even be true, all right? Got to try to stay with the text this morning. Caught in the very act of sexual immorality, of adultery, And then only one of the partners is there. So that's a le that it, in, in Jewish rabbinical thinking, that begins a legal problem. Okay. So all they want to do is test Jesus. It tells us that in verse, verse 5. Moses commanded, we stone this woman. What do you say? And they're saying this only, only because they just want to test him. They want something to accuse him. So who is really on trial here? Jesus is on trial. 
The woman, God bless her, but the woman is collateral damage. Those Pharisees and scribes, they don't care about her. They don't care about her at all. They cared about maintaining their relationship with the people and with each other and upholding their traditions. Because their alleged relationship with God was all about keeping the rules. It was all about keeping the rules. But keeping it in a way, now, are we called to obey? You guys with me this morning? Some, okay, some of you waking up. Okay, are we called to obey? Yes, we are. But hopefully our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ is such that we obey him out of a heart of love more than a heart of fear or a heart of obligation or a heart of, of a sternness within ourselves that we just have to be this way. The works that we do, why do we do them? What motivates us to serve the Lord? What motivates us to pray? What motivates us to give? What motivates us to love our neighbor? And while those works in and of themselves, yes, they are important, I think our motive and how we and why we do what we do is even much more important. And, and that our works, when our works are going to be tried as with fire, I think that the motive is going to really be the determining factor whether they become wood, hay, and stubble, or gold, and silver, and precious stones. Now, there are times that I've done the right thing, not even really for the wrong reason, but begrudgingly. You ever done the right thing begrudgingly? Okay, I'll do it. You know, when you find yourself going, okay, I'll do it. Maybe, you know, and I'm still going to do it even if it is wood, hay, or stubble. Okay. Um, but why do we do what we do? What motivates us to serve Jesus? And they wanted to trick him. They wanted to accuse him. He's the one who really is on trial here because the law, yes, says that you were to stone. You were to stone them if they committed adultery. Actually, both the man and the woman. So this wasn't even justice. It really wasn't even justice. You know, they, 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 maybe they caught her because she couldn't run as fast. I don't know. There's, there's different theories about how this event really came into place, and I'm, I'm really tempted to go off on those, yet at the same time wanting to stay within the realm of the text. I'm sure you've heard them, so I don't need to repeat them. How's that? That got, that got me back into the realm of the text. This woman has been caught in the very act of committing adultery. I can't help it. 
Sounds like a bunch of peeping Toms to me. Sorry. The law says stoner. And what do you say? And all they wanted to do was test him. They didn't even want an answer other than an answer that they could use to accuse him. Because they cared nothing for truth. They cared nothing for mercy. They cared nothing for compassion. They cared nothing for the love of a neighbor. They cared nothing about being gracious. They cared nothing about forgiveness. Because if they were able to maintain their law, then they were able to maintain their relationship with the rest of the people and with each other. There was a lot at stake writing on the answer of Jesus for these scribes and for these Pharisees. And it says that Jesus stoops down and with his finger he wrote on the ground. And this again, there's a lot of theories, a lot of theories. What did he write? I'm going to make it easy for you this morning. It doesn't say. So I don't know. What did he write? Can you speculate? Yeah, you can. I, is it wrong? No. I've got to rein myself back in because I've got a couple of verses in front of me that I want to throw out there, but I will throw out one for you if I can find it in my notes. Jeremiah 17, 13. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Jeremiah 17, 13. That fascinates me. Those who forsake me, the Lord said which implies at one time having a relationship with him. Talk about a way of diffusing a very uptight situation. He simply kneels down and starts writing. Interesting, too, going back to Jeremiah, it says... All who forsake you shall be ashamed. And the level of shame and guilt and fear in this woman must have been on overdrive. Because she's wondering whether she's going to live throughout the rest of the day. Whether Jesus might say, yeah, take her out and stone her. And they shamed her. And they made her afraid and they abused her. Probably emotionally, definitely, and probably physically to get her there. And Jesus just simply, again, what a way to diffuse it. Instead of fighting fire with fire, Of course, the God of the universe, 
and the power of slowing a situation down. Because they, they're, they're getting uptight. The, the scripture, at least that's how I'm interpreting it. Um, it says, when they persisted, verse 7, they, they, they wanted an answer. They continued asking him, and no doubt because they did not get an answer, they were getting upset themselves. He's on trial, but the reality is the Pharisees and the scribes are also on trial. They just don't know it yet. And he stoops down and he just begins to write. Other than the verse in Jeremiah, I'm not going to comment on that because I have no idea what he wrote because the scriptures do not tell us. And as he's writing away, they're persisting. And finally he stands up. He stands up. And he says, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Let him be the first. And now what he's doing, he's referring to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verse 7, where it says, the hands of the witnesses against the accused shall be the first to come against him. In other words, if you accuse someone of a capital crime, part of your responsibility where you were the first one to grab stones and start stoning that person. That really puts crime and punishment into a completely different realm, doesn't it? It really does. So they were responsible to begin the stoning, according to Deuteronomy. He simply refers back to a biblical principle. Notice it doesn't say, as it is written, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. It doesn't say that. But he's definitely tapping into a biblical principle. But he's also qualifying it. It's exactly what he did in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, if you are without sin, cast the first stone. It eliminated all of them. It eliminates all of us, doesn't it? From doing what? Exercising the judgment. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay, he says. Different interpretations, but Romans talks about this idea of leaving room for wrath. Not seeking vengeance, but leaving room for wrath. Now, it... Do you really want the wrath of God to come on someone? 
Now, you might toy with that idea from time to time. We had a chalkboard. We might even be able to make a, a list up here of some people that we've at least entertained that thought over the years. But do you really want to call down the wrath of God on someone else? Particularly in light of the grace that has been extended to each and every one of us by what Jesus did on the cross. Do people sin? Yes, they do. Do they offend others? Yes, they do. Do they, do they cross boundaries? Yes, they do. Are they unfaithful? Yes, they are. And all those things is exactly the reason why Jesus comes in the flesh and dies on the cross for the sins of the world. You know, and it's in the Proverbs, and I, it just came popped into my head, and I can't remember where it is. I hate, I hate saying that when I'm teaching. Oh, there's a verse out there anyway, because when people do it to me during a study, it drives me crazy. But the Proverbs talk about when you see God chastening your enemy, and you're glad, that if he sees you being happy about it, He'll stop. I've talked to you guys about this before. And there are times where my enemy has been chastened and I have very hard said to myself, I am not happy, I'm not happy, I am not happy. Lord, I am not happy because uh, I don't want him to stop, <laughs> right? Sometimes, though, we just have to get out of the way and let God deal with people. Especially if you've said everything that you've said and all that is all well done and good, then get out of the way and let God do what he and he alone can do. Because what happens is after Jesus says that to them, then he bends down and he begins to write in the ground again. He slows them down even more. He refers them, essentially, he's making a reference, again, I believe, to Deuteronomy 17. If you're without sin, you can cast the first stone. Well, that caused each and every one of those scribes and Pharisees who were there to at least do a cursory examination of their own heart. That's why they left beginning with the oldest who probably had a whole lot of sins that he was brought to remembrance of. You see, they shamed this woman and incredibly shamed her, and, and yet Jesus in this very simple, kind, very simple and gentle act of speaking into their lives He is calling them to a place of greater obedience. And they don't get it yet. They don't get it yet. Because they want vengeance. Because after all, this woman broke the law.
God help us when we become more in love with the principles of God rather than being in love with God himself. And I think often it is that I can't quantify it for you. I really want to. It would sound fun, but I don't know, all right? But I, I, I see it. I see it more often than I'm comfortable with. People are more in love with the ideas of God, the principles of God, and the statutes of God than they are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who called Abraham his friend. The God who called Moses his friend. The God who said he speaks to Moses face to face. The God who revealed to Moses the lawgiver when he stuck him into the cleft of a rock on Mount Sinai and covered up, covered him up so that his glory could pass by and covered him so he wouldn't be consumed with, the, with, with, with experiencing and seeing the glory of God and then allowed him, if you will, to see the afterglow, the back part of God as God had declared his nature, his glory, the, the, uh, his compassion, his slow to anger, his richness and love, his graciousness, and yet not for, not uh, not forgiving those who transgress and passing those 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 uh, sins and those curses on to to uh, um, oncoming generations. But to have had that experience where Moses, his physical face actually glowed after being in the presence of God. Because yes, he knew the statutes of God. Yes, he knew the commands of God. Yes, he knew the principles of God. Yes, he knew the character of God. But he knew God. Everything else, everything else is a cheap substitute for knowing him. Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings that I might obtain to the resurrection of life. They did not want to know God. They wanted to maintain their system because it was working really well for them. And as they are confronted with their own law of which they know they could not keep. See, Galatians is really clear about this. The, the law was our schoolmaster. The law was our tutor to teach us and to show us of our need for Christ, to show us of our need for the grace of God in our lives. He stoops down and he begins to write again. I don't know what he wrote the first time. I sure don't know what he wrote the second time, okay? That'll be a question I haven't had. What were you writing, you know? Now when they heard this, they began leaving one by one, beginning with the older ones. And when he was left alone, and the woman, where she was in the center of the courtyard, he straightened up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Do no one condemn you? That word condemn is an interesting word. I had to look it up in the Greek um, because 
Sometimes we think when someone is condemning us, they're just accusing. In the Greek, it goes beyond making an accusation. In, in the Greek, it actually means pronouncing a sentence and a determination of a person's guilt. It's the sentencing of the, the, of the uh, um, court proceeding. It's not the trial. They've already been found guilty. Now they're getting their sentence. And Jesus asked, is anybody here to, to offer a sentence of guilt upon you? Is anyone here to offer a sentence of death upon you? See, what's interesting about this, um, and part of why I, I like the fact that this, the way this is all tied together, because Nicodemus, in the previous chapter, verse 50 and 51, he says to the Sanhedrin, our, our law does not judge a person unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? See, they never really even went with the formal a bringing a formal charge against this woman. They just wanted someone to take her out and stone her. And they wanted Jesus' approval to do that. But Jesus says, is there anyone here who condemns you? Has Jesus ever asked you that question about yourself? Is there anyone here who can provide and pronounce a sentence and determine your guilt. In verse 11, so she said, no one, Lord. Greek word kyrios, used in the Old Testament, the Septuagint of the Old Testament for the proper name of God. She may have been using it in that context she might not have the idea of referring to someone as lord was much much more than referring to someone as your master it implied a sense of divinity is what it did i, I did some more digging on this word she just said no one lord and jesus said to her and i love this I'll read it to you out of the New King James. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I pronounce a sentence on you and determine your guilt. Because he will pronounce the sentence upon himself and pay the penalty of her guilt. Just like he pronounces the penalty of our sins upon himself, where it tells us again, John tells us that Jesus comes and he dies for whom? The world. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And as I read this narrative, it, it's, it's not full. You don't have anything showing us that this woman is groveling at the feet of Jesus and asking for forgiveness or any of that. I think Jesus looked into her heart and saw what was going on in her heart. 
I think there's something going on here that, 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 that much transcends what is written in the, in the written word for us. I think she got saved that day. Because Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. And to go and to sin no more. And it's interesting about this verse, and I've, I've mentioned this a, while, a long time ago. When you read this verse, particularly out of the New King James as opposed to the New American Standard, um, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. What do you hear? What's the first thing in that verse that you hear? Go and sin no more, or neither do I condemn you. Why am I asking? Some of you are giving me a look like, what are you doing, right? That's all right. Because it's possible. It's possible. I'm guessing, I'm speculating. Your mileage may vary, okay? It's possible that what you hear verse what you hear in that verse first might be an indicator of how you view your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ and with others. I'll leave you with that. Do you hear go and sit no more for crying out loud? And I've known people that boy that's that's what they gravitate for. Or do you hear neither do I condemn you? The thing is I want to hear neither do I con- neither do I condemn you and apply it to me. And I guess everybody else can get that too, but for crying out loud, you better go and you better not sin anymore. That's pharisaical. That's like the scribes and Pharisees. And as as I thought about this, still thinking about this, all right, but I'm just going to give it to you anyway. Jesus is calling her into a life with him. He's calling her to live a life of repentance. And and part of that life with Christ, I believe, is to live a life of repentance. To be mindful of that which the Lord has instructed us to do and to be mindful of the things that we do that do not please him and to repent and to continue that relationship with him. But it's not like, because I've I've talked with some people and I feel like they think that Jesus has got a hammer and he's just hammering this woman. Go and sin no more or else they're going to bring you back, right? Right? That's not who Jesus is. That's not who he is. And if we claim to be conformed or are being conformed, Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. If we claim to be conformed, to be being conformed into the image of Christ, 
then we need to have the grace of God extended to others in our lives as well.